This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight in the program, we are going to give you the barometer on COVID cases in Canada. Also going to be talking about male incontinence, a very distressing problem. And do you find it more difficult to learn as you age? I'm going to tell you why. And also going to talk about sexless marriage and who's to blame. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast begins now. Well, here we are again. You know, in British Columbia, we have some new lockdown measures uh, for 14 days. We have some other regulations hitting the country in different areas. Uh, Some places they're opening bars and restaurants, which has always been my confusion. I know that helps the economy. Anyway, to talk all about that is my guest, who is holds a PhD. He is Assistant Professor of Viral Pathogenesis at the Department of Medical Microbiology at the University of Manitoba, and his research interest lies in emerging and re-emerging viruses. Thank goodness he is none other than Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, and he joins me from Manitoba. Good evening, Dr. Kinderchuk. How are you doing, Maureen? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Doing all right. Doing Great. all right. It's, it's going to be weird to be watching CNN again and uh, not just hearing about the election. <laughs> oh, I think we're going to hear about it. For, I think we're going to hear about it for a long time. <laughs> I'm so interested now in what Fox News has to say. And but apparently, oh, yeah. Trump is very upset with Fox News. <laughs> well, listen. It, you know, it, it's it, it becomes comical at some point, and. Uh, yeah, you know, at some point this will all end. We'll all go back to a normal life again. But let's let's man, hope but, so. Well, he can't win for losing that guy. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> I think one of the biggest issues, although shockingly enough, seventy million Americans did vote for um, Donald Trump. But uh, I think one of the big reasons that we had such tremendous greater uh, voter turnout, um, much greater voter turnout, is because of the coronavirus, which is what you and I are going to be talking about once again this evening. So what's the barometer of the cases, the coronavirus cases in Canada? Oh, uh, what's the barometer? So the barometer is, is that we're, we're going in the wrong direction uh, extremely quickly. I, I kind of I put it, uh, you know, in a tweet about 10 or 15 minutes ago in regards to, to Manitoba. Um, we have passed the precipice and we're hurtling uh, basically, you know, kind of down the uh down the ledge very, very quickly. Um, and, and I think, you know, I, I don't mean to say that in, in kind of a, a fear-based way, um, but, but I think Manitoba is kind of a, a really good um, indicator for the rest of Canada of what happens when everything goes in the wrong direction. Um, you know, and, and obviously, uh, you know, for, for those that haven't heard about it, there was, uh, you know, a, a pretty big issue this weekend with one, one of the long-term care facilities. Um, they lost seven people to COVID uh, within uh, between 24 and 48 hours. Oh. Um, there's now a, a pretty big investigation into what went wrong and what happened. Um, ultimately, you know, we, we've lost 86 people from October 1st to now. Um, and we had another 440 cases announced today. Um, it, uh, it, this is kind of what, what we're seeing. And we're seeing, obviously, things get going a little bit out of control in Alberta, um, Saskatchewan, uh, you know, cases are, are certainly increasing. I think they hit a, a record high today. Um, you know, we, we know that, that it's, as cases increase, hospitalizations are going to increase uh, in the background. And, and certainly with the, uh, you know, the letter that I partook in uh, this week to, to our premier in Manitoba, um, there, there are concerns from all of our frontline healthcare workers 
about where this is going and their capacity to be able to deal with patients. And so is this in large part due to complacency? Is this due to the fact that people don't want to wear, wear masks? Do we have a contingency of people here in Canada, much like in the U.S., where they don't believe that the coronavirus exists? Um, what, to what do you attribute? Is it the fact that it's the fall and we're spending a little bit more time indoors right now and the risk of infection increases? Uh, to what do you, and I know in British Columbia, there has been, um, uh, you know, high increased rates in a, in a particular uh, health region, um, and some people are not abiding by, by the laws, and so therefore new laws have been, um, mm-hmm. or by the guidance, and so therefore new lockdown laws have been implemented. Well, I think the easy answer for, you know, for all the variables that you said was yes. I, I mean, they, they all likely have an effect, and I think the issue for us now is, you know, in the middle of a crisis, trying to tease apart um, exactly what are the, the primary variables that are leading to these increases. It's difficult to do at best. Um, but, but I think we can, you know, probably take a step back and say most of these things have, uh, you know, some role to play. Certainly complacency um, is something I think in the prairies that has played out for a long period of time. We had a summer where virtually we had no cases. Um, there was a complacency that set in, and now as fall has started to, to kind of wrap around and, and, you know, winter has kind of reared its ugly head, um, people are spending more time indoors, so we're seeing transmission. And of course, once the bug starts to pick up in a couple of cases, though you know those two cases become four, and then they become eight, and they become sixteen, and they they kind of go off the roller coaster very very quickly, um, where, where we just can't keep track of, of where the cases are. So I think you have that. You you certainly have um, you know some anti mask contingents and and uh, anti COVID uh, contingents in Canada. They're very vocal, but I think they still are the minority. I think a lot of it is just people are tired. And, and frankly, I get it. I, I'm in the middle of this in terms of research, and I'm tired of it as well. But I also know I don't have a choice but, but to keep going um, because I, I don't want to see other people uh, you know, sacrificing uh, because I've made a bad choice or I made a bad decision. And, and it is incumbent upon us to do the best we can for, for the most vulnerable around us. Absolutely. We all certainly have to do our part. And we, and we certainly can be tired and become complacent. And, and I think people stayed out of gyms, for example, because gyms were closed and, and dance classes uh, were closed. And then there's, this, there's so much information, misinformation that's out there. And sometimes there's conflicting information. Now, I, I looked up today on the World Health Organization website about uh, exercising with a mask. And they recommend that you don't exercise with a mask. And then this study just came out. Uh, recently out of the University of Saskatchewan um, that actually states their wearing of cloth or disposable, sur- disposable surgical face masks has no effect on vigorous exercise performance in healthy individuals. Um, I just have a call on the line and we'll, and we'll get back to that because uh, sure. we're going to go to break soon. Hey, Mary from Winnipeg, how are you? Pretty good, how about you? Fine, thank you. Good. Dr. Kinderchuk, why in advance of the second wave Didn't the government um, stipulate that all homes had to have isolation wards? I'll give you an example of a home that's bucking the trend. In in Winnipeg, we have Holy Family Nursing Home, and they have an isolation ward. They've had six cases, three have recovered. They have two more, they're in the isolation ward. They're away from the rest of the ward, away from the population, 
and under the the guidance of a doctor who has hospital experience at treating COVID, they're just bucking the trend. They're doing extremely well. So this is such a great question, Mary. And, and you know, I, I think people in, uh, in Manitoba um, obviously heard uh, many of us kind of voicing our, our concerns to the premier last week. And, and a lot of this comes back to the fact that um, we, we need to have better standards. And my view on this is that we had months to prepare for our long-term care facilities uh, in the prairies and, and certainly in Manitoba from what we saw in Ontario in the first wave. Um, I find it extremely, extremely demoralizing and disheartening that we are facing the exact same issues that, that we all talked about, we all knew about uh, in the springtime. And, and it seemingly we have not gotten any better. Um, I'm hoping that what's going to come out of some of these discussions uh, right now with, um, you know, with the current outbreak um, at, at Maple's personal care home, that these discussions will actually uh, gain a lot more spotlight and you will hopefully see some integration of this. Um, is it going to happen overnight? I, I can't tell you that. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, but I'm, I'm hopeful that some, something good has to come out of this. Uh, otherwise, we're, we are not paying any service to the people that... Uh, that, that have uh, passed uh, because of uh, uh, these failures. Um, so I did have a specific question about, because I'm confused, because sometimes I have to make decisions in my other life um, about wearing of masks and in situations. And this seems to be, I've had a number of questions about this, um, about wearing cloth or disposable surgical face mask and the impact on vigorous exercise performance in healthy individuals. I hear a lot of people saying, well, you're rebreathing your CO2 and that's building up in the mask and that's the problem. So uh, there's a new study out of the University of Saskatchewan that is in conflict, although it's a small study, with the WHO guidelines. So what are your thoughts on it? Well, listen, I'm going to say right up front that uh, I I do have a bias here. Uh, One of the authors is uh, a guy I went to high school with and and played football with. So, um, and, and, and listen, I, I, you know, I, I respect and, and think very highly of, uh, of he and his team. Um, and, and actually, I think the study is, is important. I think there has been this discussion about what happens with masks when, when we exercise and do we actually see that CO2 builds up? And is this something that could actually be, um, you know, a concern for us health-wise? Um, and I think their study goes to show that, no, in fact, you know, you can exercise fairly vigorously and it doesn't seem to have any sort of uh, an effect on us physically. Um, but there is this other aspect, uh, and I go back to this idea that we're 10 months into this, uh, into this pandemic, and we, I think, are still somewhat just kind of, you know, glazing the surface um, with understanding what transmission looks like in every situation. So what we think is that it looks like droplets and aerosols both contribute to, to some extent. We don't necessarily know uh, if one does more so than the other, and we don't know the specific context of the situation. Um, but we do know that there are these super spreader events where we see wide uh, dissemination of virus from one individual to a multitude of others. And we don't understand really what what happens in that situation. And this is where the, the gym phenomenon becomes so you know concerning because we obviously we saw this in Hamilton with a spin studio and what happens when you're in a closed space. Um, so I'm saying all this because when we get back to masks, there is kind of this double-edged sword. Part of it is there is a concern for people that are working vigorously because as your humidity builds up and as that mask starts to become essentially more and more wet, uh, two things happen. One is you lose the seal 
um, for, for being able to, uh, to keep yourself protected to some extent from anything that you're breathing in, although we don't use masks predominantly to protect ourselves. But the other aspect is the filtering ability as you cough or as you expel any sort of droplets or aerosols becomes reduced as that mask gets heavier with, uh, with moisture. So all of this becomes an issue as far as trying to reduce uh, the, the ability to transmit. But of course, there's this aspect that if you're in a gym, especially if you have high community transmission, um, is it better to wear a mask or is it not? And I think, honestly, we don't know. Um, and, and I think we need to be able to, to come to the public and say, we're in a situation we don't fully understand what this looks like yet, um, but we're learning uh, you know, somewhat from trial and error as we see more data coming in. I think right now it leans a little bit towards the fact you can wear a mask uh, um, in a gym and actually still be able to maintain your CO2 and, and hopefully reduce transmission, um, but that may not be a one-size-fits-all for every situation. Right, and it may affect younger people differently than it does affect older people. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and, and that's and that's the aspect of all of this, right? Is that it, the, you know the way that COVID affects people is not the same across every age group, across every health background, um, and, and it, it has made this so so unbelievably complex for us to try to understand in such a short amount of time. It certainly has. Dr. Kinderchuk, once again, the esteemed Dr. Kinderchuk, thank you so much for joining me on the program, and we'll talk to you next week And uh, as this coronavirus evolves. Joining me on the line is a very brave gentleman and his wife, who happens to be a nurse. This gentleman has suffered with urinary incontinence. We typically associate urinary incontinence or leaky bladders with little old ladies, in part because the marketing has always centered around pink packaging. But that is not the case. In fact, men can leak urine just as much as women at certain times and associated with certain medical procedures or surgeries. So joining me on the line is Brian and his lovely wife, Allison. Good evening to the two of you. Good evening. Thanks so much for joining to talk about this subject that can be undignified, embarrassing, um, make you feel older and uh, really impact your quality of life, to name a couple of things. So, so Brian, you um, suffered with male urinary incontinence. So, so tell me how that happened. Why did you suffer with this condition that can be debilitating for a lot of people? Well, in uh, 2005, I had a radical prostatectomy in, uh, in the fall. And uh, after a couple of years, I, I still had the incontinence from the cause of that, and uh, my surgeon sent, referred me to a specialist to uh, look at the incontinence. Right, and uh, and were there some things that you had tried uh, to help with your incontinence, like reduction of bladder irritants or um, urge suppression? Did you need to wear pads or diapers, as many people do? I was wearing pads. Uh, from the time I had the surgery till the two years later, we really didn't do anything. We were just monitoring the situation. And uh, then when it was obvious that it wasn't going to clear up, then I was referred to the specialist. Right. And did it, did it, it didn't get any better, I gather. So it didn't you know, improve no. a little bit over time? No. And Allison, what was it like uh, to l- live with a man, you know, to see uh, your husband who had obviously gotten over uh, the surgery and, um, and I gather, I don't want to assume, but you had the radical prostatectomy for prostate cancer, Brian? 
Yes. Yes. So you see your husband who you love and you've lived with for a long time and you see him, he's conquered the cancer and now he's left with leakage of urine. What was that like as his wife? Well, it was um, embarrassing for Brian, but we were just glad that the the cancer had been cured. But it was a bit embarrassing for Brian when he sometimes leaked, especially if he was sitting, and it would leak past the pad, and so the chair would have urine on it. But uh, other than that, we just carried on as best we could. Of course, of course, and it, but it can be life-altering. Um, so for two years you did that, and, and Brian, and it's my understanding that you entered a clinical trial um, for a particular type of treatment that uh, treats stress urinary incontinence, which is what we often see after radical prostatectomy in men. Um, so yes, tell me a little bit about that. Well, the clinical trial wasn't until later. When I went to the specialist, he gave me, he, he gave me different options of various methods, and I selected one which was the least invasive, and I carried on with that for about six years, and it wasn't exactly perfect, and he said there was a, a new thing coming out, and uh, was I interested in clinical trials for that, and I said, well, okay, and that was the Contino product. Right, and so was it the balloon that, that is surgically implanted um, for men that you had tried? The, the, the balloons were what were surgically implanted that I started with, yes. Right. That's pretty invasive, if you ask me. But I want to say thank you so much for participating in a clinical trial because I have actually run clinical trials in the past, and we would never make the advancements that we make in medicine or science without uh, people like you who are participating right. in it. Um, so you put up with basically that balloon for six years or so, and then you uh, were entered into the trial for the Contino product, which is a yes. a device for male urinary incontinence. And mm-hmm. and how did that go? Well, like any trial, it was sort of trial and error to start with, and you know sometimes you you got things right and sometimes you didn't. But uh, as we went on, things got a little better, and. Uh, I've been using that Contino since about 2014. I was probably one of the first in the trials. So that's six years of, of using that mm-hmm. product. So it, it sounds like it um, is working pretty well. Allison, as a nurse, uh, you know, not everyone is married to a nurse, with the, those unfortunate ones. <laughs> um, but uh, saying that as a nurse, of course. Um, but does somebody need to be a nurse in order to, like, was this a difficult adjustment even for you? Did you need to help Brian, or is this something he can do on his own? Um, it never really um, bothered me that much because I had dealt with... Um, patients who had urinary incontinence and and, uh, had tried lots of different things and nothing really seemed to work until he got the Contina and since then it's been so much better. That's fantastic. And, and Brian, how has your life improved with the Contina, which I just want to say controls bladder leaks, it's discreet, it's convenient, it's a urethral insertion device, it's utilized, or um, you, you go to a medical professional who actually assists you and trains you um, how to do this. So how has your life improved with the Contino device? Well, it's improved because now I, with that, you, you can sort of arrange your life a little better you, you can sort of know how long you can go before you have to urinate, whereas before you didn't know when it was going to happen. 
and it, it's almost like living normally. Like I can go a couple of hours, and um, you've you've really got to sort of arrange your life so that you know where the washroom is. But uh, other than that, it's pretty well normal. I've uh, done uh, ice skating, and uh, we go walking every day, and just we we just do things normally. It's just the fact that. Um, when when it's time to go, it's time to go, and I have to know where the washroom is. But uh, other than that, it's pretty good. And then you remove the device in order to uh, go to the washroom. Yes. Excellent. It takes a little bit longer than it used to do, but you know. Hey, that's okay. If you're not leaking urine, you're no longer in pads. No. Which is fantastic because you know I think that wearing pads would be so undignified. And not to mention the expense, and and surely that had an impact on on housework, Allison. <laughs> Were you um, doing more laundry? If you're the one who does the laundry, I'm, I don't want to assume anything. Uh, yeah, I do the laundry, but there wasn't really a lot different because he's really particular about how he does things. So um, even with the pads, he usually knew when he needed to change them, and so I didn't really have a lot of extra. Um, laundry, right? But it's that those pads are an added expense. Not to mention their impact on the environment. And you know, the thing that I love about this story, your story, is that you know, Brian, you mentioned that you're now uh, ice skating, you're going out for walks, you know, spending quality time together, not having to worry about leaking urine. That surely that has um, got you got to make you smile. Yeah, uh, yeah. Although I say ice skating, I haven't done any for the last five months because everything's closed. Right, of course. <laughs> Unfortunately, I know. I'm dying to get back to it. Oh, well, hopefully this winter you will. It's, it's at least an outdoor activity. I don't know if you do it outdoors. You're no, it's in, it, indoor. Oh, you do indoor. Okay, I know you're calling in. Yeah, we're, we're talking to you from Ontario, so I know it's cold mm-hmm. outside anyway um, there. But um, well, I really appreciate uh you talking to me this evening, and um, and have you noticed any th- any other improvements that you didn't really expect um, from using this Contino device? Did, did you have some urge incontinence before? Uh, I haven't really see, seen any difference. Uh, I think as time's gone on with the uh, trials, and it, I've just sort of worked into it, and being over the last six years, it's just sort of, Life's carried on as normal, and in in the meantime, I've just gone along with it. But right now, I uh, am delighted to have back on the program because it's been a while, and I think that it's just because of the pandemic has changed things. And and this gentleman um, used to join me in studio, and now with the pandemic, all of the interviews are on the phone. So. Ward Plunett is a neuroscience research scientist. He has a PhD and he joins me on the line to talk about a little bit more about our brains and learning and advancing age. Good evening, Ward. How are you? I'm very good. How are you, Maureen? I'm fine, thank you. Nice to have you back on the program. And I'm glad to hear, uh, glad to be here and hopefully we can uh, educate the public a little bit here. And we certainly can. Well, you can anyway. That's that's for sure. So it was a very interesting um, post that you put on on LinkedIn um, about uh, why we 
the science helps to explain why motivation to learn declines with age. And what I was really interested in was this was actually related to addiction and other aspects of life, other um, issues around making choices. Um, So tell us a little bit about this study. Uh, So, yes, you're exactly right. You know, obviously a lot of things in our life is about choices, right? We have to learn, you know, the positive rewards um, versus the negative rewards. Don't touch the stove. It's hot. We learned that at a very young age. Uh, But like you say, addiction and also depression. So addiction is we overvalue a certain reward that we shouldn't. And for depression, sometimes we don't engage in activities that we should. So we don't get the rewarding activities that or we don't get the rewarding feelings from the activities that we should, such as, let's say, social engagement or exercise even. Yes. No, very true. So that's yeah. another example. So we, we have to learn it. But sometimes our brain isn't working correctly and we we give incorrect values on positive things or negative things. And when that and, happens... And then we make mistakes, such as drug addiction, or not a mistake, but things happen and we don't choose the right way. Uh, we don't choose to, let's say, go to school and we should because we're depressed. And so, sorry, and go ahead. I was going to say, these two things, uh, especially addiction and depress- depression, these two things are things that people think falsely um, are choices when we know that these are actually medical conditions. And, and this yeah. study may actually demonstrate that. Yes. So um, while it's somewhat semantic in the sense, yes, we make choices, but it isn't like we have, mm, it's hard to say not control of it, but it is a brain dysfunction that's making us choose unlikely or wrong choices. But it's not a choice at the, you know, fundamental level. Right. You're correct. Right. And I just want to mention that this study came out um, October 28th and from the Massachusetts Insti- from MIT, Massachusetts yeah. Institute of Technology. So it's a, a pretty high-powered institution and um, uh, pretty valid, but it was done in mice, let's say that. <laughs> yes, that's right. And so you always got to take caveat with the mice. But, you know, in reality, most of the situations, we can see the same at, with whatever techniques we have as best we can in humans. It is the same. It's, you know, the addiction and depression is similar, but... Again, always some caveats. And do we see a lot of people, is this why we may see a lot of people who have depression who may also have addiction issues? That I'm not so sure, but it kind of makes sense in the sense that if if your system to be able to calculate reward versus cost is in balance or not working correctly and not making correct valuations of the environment, the situation, then all things, all bets are off and we're going to, we're going to not make the right choices at that time because the brain is not rewarding it correctly. Exactly. So tell us what happened in these mice with their, in particular with the circuits that are going on in yeah. our brains. So these reward pathways, one major one is the striatum, which we don't have to know the details about that. And they were looking in one particular type of cells in the striatum. But again, that's not important for us. They were looking at the differences of learning a simple task. And so we can think of, let's say you decide to learn to play the piano. And, you know, you touch a key and you hear the right sound and you're playing along your musical piece and you hit the wrong key. And it's like, oh, that's the wrong key. And this is how we learn. So this is a very simple. You're getting rewarded for the correct tone and getting, you know, uh, saying a negative cost in the sense that that's the wrong thing, wrong key to hit. And what they really found is not all animals learn well, but these are rodents, um, but with humans, you can think of playing the piano, learning it, 
And the problem is it, this reward system changes with age. And I'll give you, try to give you the simple story is when I hit the right key, I should once set a neuron to fire and I get a big reward, a bunch of action potentials. But if I hit the wrong key, there should be a negative signals. The number of firing should go down. And that's how I learn that's the wrong thing. But when we age, basically, we don't get that negative signal as well. And so it's harder to learn something because you're almost like tone deaf, even though you're not tone deaf, you're just not, your brain is not detecting the negative signal and therefore it's harder to learn. And is that because it effectively weakens as we age? Well, it's more not necessarily weakens, it's the discrimination between positive and negative. Similar to depression or addiction, we are not detecting, you know, obviously taking drug X is, let's say, bad, let's say heroin or something, and we're getting a huge reward, but obviously there's a huge cost to it, but we're only valuing the reward in that case and not all the negative costs. And this is kind of, again, we're not, I'm not trying to say an addiction with age, but it's the thing here is we're not discriminating signal versus noise. In this case, positive reward versus negative reward. We basically both value the same, and therefore we can't discriminate. Therefore, we don't learn as well. And is this why people might give up certain things as they age? Or I, I had a, an 80-year-old gentleman on the program last week, and he's still working full-time. And I, and I also met a woman in my clinical practice who was 80, and she was working full-time, both you know, happy and engaged and you know, positive attitudes. And is it, and ver- both of them in, you know, positions of responsibility so where they would need to learn new things is it is this why some people can work well into their 80s and and some can't so i think this is actually the important part for the for the audience here is um is the engagement and that's what they found here and obviously we all age differently and if you are learning uh it's obviously a good sign but let's say in general, as we age, everybody's going to be different, but let's say it's going to be harder to learn. Just say on average, right? Sure. Some people are great learners at 80, uh, but probably most of us won't be great. Mm-hmm. But if we know that this is a problem and the real problem is we're less likely to engage in the activity. So you're less likely to try to learn the plant piano or learn to go surf when you're 65 because the reward system is not, you don't get that reward versus negative. And for some reason, that makes us less likely to go surfing, go dancing, and do any new activity because even though we might not know it intellectually, we're not getting overall the reward signal. So my advice is um, we're not rodents, as, as you mentioned, and therefore we can kind of use our higher intellect and say, okay, I might not be doing this as well as I would like to, and therefore I notice I don't want to go surfing, I don't want to go play the piano, but we kind of got to say, let's go do that. Let's go learn ballroom dancing because we do have that kind of like um, willpower or more forceful intervention of that. Okay. I, if I know the reason why I'm not going surfing or piano painting is because of the way my neurons are firing, but I know I still will get a reward if I go. Right. You know what, what I'm thinking of is, you know, trying to teach grandparents how to use the computer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was thinking about bringing up that example, but I wasn't sure. Yeah. Yes. But it's also, you can actually see the kids who have been raised with uh, social media or technology, I should say, you know, are, it's second nature for them. 
Uh, But as within every increasing decade, people don't seem to have the ability to do what a 20-year-old can do. Yes, and this is, uh, so like I say, you you were interviewing people that were in the 80s still learning new things. And yes, in most cases, it's going to be a little bit hard to learn. But the problem is not just the learning, is that if you just don't do it, if you don't use the new technology, the phone or whatever it may be, then obviously you can't learn it. And so you just have to almost force yourself to do it. Uh, keep up with the modern times or old things. It can be dancing, it can be anything, but go out there and keep on engaging. Right. And so it's not, this study didn't show that people couldn't learn. This just showed people why people might, extrapolating it from mice, why people might have difficulty learning new things as they age. Yeah, it isn't like they're not capable of learning. You know, some of the old animals did learn. Um, they don't get this, you know, they don't get these opposite signals of a clear uh, positive reward and a clear negative reward. They're very close to the same reward, so it's harder to learn. But the more worrisome thing, I think, for us or for what I want to talk about or mention is the problem is they were less likely to engage. Right. Obviously, you cannot learn if you don't engage. That's right. That's You've got to try. Yeah, and that's what we want to encourage, people to engage. That's right. I think that's a great message, Ward. Thank you so much for that, and thank you for being on the show. Here we are, that back-to-the-bedroom segment when uh, you tell me you all go to bed with me. <laughs> Only I'm here and you're there. Fantasy's great. Don't worry about it. It's very helpful. Can it actually help spark sexual desire as long as you don't tell somebody if they don't want to know about where your sexual fantasies are. Anyway, I wanted to tell you again about another patient of mine uh, this evening because I thought this was so interesting and I, and I get this all the time. I hear this from, from patients all the time. And so my patient told me that she and her husband had an all-out brawl over nothing. I mean, I, I, I don't want to say what it exactly was because I, I want to protect their anonymity, but so let's just say that they had an all-out brawl over the smallest thing in life, like loading the silverware in the dishwasher. Should it be up? Should it be down? Just like their marriage was, up and down. And the next morning, after this all-out brawl, screaming, fighting at each other, just being nasty toward one another and being disrespectful, they both got up in the morning and they didn't sleep in the same room. And uh, the next morning they got up and uh, they acted like nothing happened. And this had been a theme throughout their marriage. And this couple was in a sexless marriage. And now this couple is facing financial ruin in large part due to their irresponsibility and due, due to um, just not really being on the same page, quite frankly. So they were married when they were quite young and, 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 and interesting there. Um, he was larger than life, and and she was actually raised by a woman who was a drug addict, and and so she he kind of came up with a fancy car, and he had you know a wallet full of money, and she associated happiness because she had lived basically you know in large part neglected by her mother, and um, she was deprived, uh, quite frankly, as compared with the other kids in her school. And uh, so she thought money was happiness. And how many people think that money equates to happiness? There are so many people. When I make this amount of money, I'm going to be this happy. When I make this amount, and, and the truth is, after about $72,000, there's really no difference in uh, happiness. And if you can put a roof over your head and, and have something that 
eat on your table uh, each night, that, that's pretty much as, as happy as you're going to get. And uh, so some 20 years later, this woman who believed, and through no fault of her own, um, believed that money would was the key to happiness, found herself bereft spiritually, emotionally, and financially because she'd actually never loved this guy. She actually thought it was the money that was going to make her happy and she could put up with anything, but she actually couldn't put up with uh, being with a man who she was not attracted to, thought he was okay, but wasn't in love with him, if you will, didn't have that, um, you know, that loin (laughs) gripping attraction uh, to this guy ever. She never had it. And so they lived a life where there was uh, bur- outbursts, left, right, and center. They, there were times when they had money, and then there were times when they had no money. There was tremendous chronic stress um, as they walked along this journey of this marriage. And um, so she got to a time in her life where she just didn't know what to do. And, and just a few other things, too, um, which is why I promote, I'm so happy that um, we have a woman in, in the second highest office in the land in the U.S. Um, you know, I often encourage, so often I encourage women to um, get a job, make your own way in life. That's how I was raised. Um, never depend on a man for your money. And uh, because you will actually have a very unhealthy balance of power in that relationship, uh, or you have a tendency or a risk, I should say. Um, So she was very, very miserable and very, very unhappy. And she blamed him. Um, You know, getting back to the silverware, it was not about the silverware, nor was about these teeny little things that would cause blow up fights. Um, you know, there were issues with the children as well. Some of the children had mental health issues. There was estrangement um, in the family. Um, the thing was, she was so focused on blaming him, getting upset with him. He, you know, earns all this money and then he loses it. And then she was diagnosing him, you know, claiming he had a personality disorder and there was something wrong with him. And, and you know, and she didn't know what to do. And, and because she didn't work and she'd never worked over the, the entire 20-year marriage, but she actually did do some work for him. But she didn't work outside of the home um, and in a paid position. Um, and so she was left with really no options but to stay. And so, you know, you're basically living a lie when you're, when you're doing that. She was working for him, but she wasn't paying herself, okay? I see this so much, too. I hire a lot of people, let me tell you, and I've hired a lot of people over the past 15 years. And uh, it is so interesting how women will say to me, oh, thank you so much. Oh, that's what you'll pay me? That's excellent. Okay, great. Um, men will say, um, you know, I want to negotiate. I mean, I can count on my one hand, how many, no, one finger, <laughs> how many women have tried to negotiate uh, with me. And it was, it was really only recently. And unfortunately, there was no room to negotiate and we had other people lined up, so we couldn't um, do that. But I was really proud of her for actually doing that. We weren't giving the men anything more. We weren't giving the women anything more. There just was no more. Um, but, you know, there was a great book, and I think I've recommended it before on this program, um, certainly on Instagram, is a book called Know Your Worth by Mika Brzezinski. She does the um, Morning um, morning Joe with, um, is that the name of it? Anyway, it's a show on M- MSNBC, and, um, and she talked about in her early in her career how the guys were making so much more money, and uh, 
um, she was having to work three times as much and, you know, she was having to spend money on hair and clothing. And, you know, at the end of the month, she had, she was paying, you know, to work basically. And so she didn't know her worth. And so it's always important as a woman or anyone to know your worth. But men haven't, you know, they've been socialized to know their worth more so. Um, And so I encourage this woman to actually start paying herself from the money that, um, from the work she was doing for her husband, because this would be uh, very important. Now, I know there's alimony and this kind of thing, but, you know, there's just something empowering and, and taking that first step to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change this. I'm going to make this different. And so she, when she talked a lot about blaming him, I had to reframe her, you know, bring her back because that's one of the things I do in my clinical practice. When a couple comes in, they're always like pointing the finger and I let them do it for like 10 minutes. But since we only have an hour, I'm like, okay, that's over now for the next 50 minutes. There's no more blaming the partner. What it is, it's I words, I responsibility. How have you contributed contributed to the demise in your marriage is the big question. It's very difficult for people to change that mindset, but eventually they get it. And those people that do get it actually heal and end up being much happier. So I told her that it was not about the silverware. It was so much bigger than that. And in fact, it was about her and it was about her decisions and through the circumstances of her life, she had, and I hate to use the word fail, but she had failed to do the next right thing. At some point after you marry somebody in your 20s and you've married them for money and you've had the first bankruptcy or the second bankruptcy, you know, as an adult, you know, we must wake up. So, but at this stage of the game, um, it was time for her to bre- break open. Um, I didn't want her to break down. And that is what women are at risk for when they live in this kind of relationship. And I've certainly seen the pain of people who have put their happiness happiness into money and they end up broke and broken and it prevents success. And by success, I mean peace of mind. I do not mean financial success because that can often be vacant and empty. So I asked her, what do you want? When she realized like, yes, it was these decisions and that she was staying with him and she was living a lie with him and that was unfair to him. Now he would have his role as well, but I'd never actually spoken to him. So um, that's the other thing. It's important if you go to get therapy, it's important that both of you go in because it can be very much a uh, blaming game otherwise. So when I, when I said, what do you want? She said, I'd like to get in touch with myself by taking responsibility for all the ways I had been lying to me and was dictated by a false narrative. And I told her that was a great step. And the next step I mentioned, I didn't want her to break down because that actually is extremely risky to one's mental health. But I did want her to break open. Stay with me. I'm going to talk about what it means to break open. I wanted to talk to you. I don't know if you were listening to the last segment, but um, about a woman in a sexless marriage who was blaming her husband. But in fact, the truth was that she was never attracted to him. She married him for his money. We marry people for reasons other than being in love. Um, and really wanting to make a life with another person. And we discount the sexual attraction, which is so important in a marriage because when all else fails, if you can have a romp in the hay, <laughs> all is good. And so it's important, but we don't give that uh, education to people. I try to chase brides and grooms down the aisle, making sure that they know that. Is this the one? If you're in a sexless, mar- if you're in a sexless relationship before the marriage, chances are you're going to be in a sexless marriage 
after the relationship as well. So the other thing this this woman did was she was crying, why me, why me, why has this happened to me? And when we ask why me, we play the victim. And so it's never good to ask that question. Why not me is actually the healthier because if you make certain decisions, you actually, you know, there's stands to reason that this may happen to you. And so when you live in chronic stress or you are living a lie or you are living to impress other people or you are hiding what has happened to you or you are ashamed because there's so many judgmental people around here. When you live that way, it can actually lead to mental distress, significant mental distress. And you've heard me use this analogy before. It's like being in the Atlantic Ocean, which is so much wavier, more waves than the Pacific Ocean. And it's like trying to hold two beach balls down underneath and it will impact your mental health big time. And you are at risk of what used to be called a nervous breakdown. And we just kind of call it a a breakdown now. Um, But there are symptoms because stress can hit you so hard. You will wonder about the state of your mental health and you might get anxiety. You might feel an out-of-body experience. Your heart rate might be increasing. A lot of those autonomic functions may actually be out of control because they are involuntary. You might even get urgency to void as well with extreme stress. And you might find yourself asking the question, am I having a nervous breakdown? And that thought can be very frightening. But, you know, how do you know if your feelings are anything to be concerned about? Well, it's important to understand those symptoms, and I mentioned a few, those symptoms of anxiety. And then if you still think you might be having a nervous breakdown, you can get treatment and support to get past it. So nervous breakdown is a term that people who aren't mental health professionals describe as a sharp decline in mental health. And living in a very stressful marriage or living a lie or having to deal with financial issues and trying to hide all of that, making this this facade of perfection, all of that can impact your mental health. A nervous breakdown to a medical professional, a psychiatrist, is often a sign of underlying mental illness, but it could be the first sign of anxiety or possible mood disorder. However, it can also be situational. And it can it can seemingly start very suddenly, but um, the issues that contribute to it could have been going on for years. And that's what happens when people have this um, ongoing stress for years in a relationship, then they may actually feel like they are losing it. They may start crying hysterically. They may just not be able to cope. They may have shortness of breath. It usually is a very intense but short-term condition, and it does come with extreme feelings of distress and that sense of being overwhelmed. And it's very difficult for you to function well when this happens. And then typically, you know, if you're kind of living along and you're trying to pay the bills and you're trying to, and you're trying to avoid this partner that you're not attracted to, and, and this partner is maybe losing their job or they're drinking or they're using drugs or they're, you know, not what you had expected in your life, or maybe you are as well, that's how you are self-medicating to deal with your stress. Or maybe you haven't dealt with your childhood issues. There can be so many things, you know, you can find yourself under an umbrella of tremendous distress. Um, You know, so, so many people break down. I often say that mental health is created. 
Um, but if you are not looking after your mental health, you may experience a depressed mood, anxiety, feeling overwhelmed, being unable to carry on activities of daily living. You might miss appointments or work. You may not be uh, up on work. You may have difficulty with concentration or difficulty making decisions and completing tasks. You might actually feel isolated or you might actually isolate yourself from others and you may have mood swings or poor hygiene. You might be extremely tired or have this sense of lethargy. You may also get gastrointestinal problems or pain. You might get sick frequently. You might have heart racing, trembling, sweating, dizziness, and excessive crying. You might have a crying jag. Um, So it's Sometimes people can experience a break with reality, but I'm not talking about that point where that is more associated with a mental health, diagnosable mental health condition. What I am talking about is people who break down. They just have a breakdown. They just want to lose it. They don't know what's going on. They are crying hysterically, sobbing. They can't take it anymore. They haven't done uh, good self-care. And by that, I don't mean pedicures and manicures. I mean self-care for your mental health. I mean, you know, taking exercising and eating properly and cutting down or out the alcohol, the drugs, the, the pot. Um, I mean, going into bed at the same time. I mean, dealing with your relationship, dealing with conflict. I mean, make, being organized and really taking an engaged approach to life, not an enduring life where you're just putting up with it and putting one foot in front of the other, because that's what can happen when you don't create your own mental health. And so I don't want you to break down, but I'd like you to break open. And some of the best words of breaking open have has come from a book that I read called Broken Open, How Difficult Times Can Help Us Grow. And here you go. I'm going to read it to you. May you listen to the voice within the beat, even when you are tired. When you feel yourself breaking down, may you break open instead. May every experience in life be a door that opens your heart, expands your understanding, and leads you to freedom. If you are weary, may you be aroused by passion and purpose. If you are blameful and bitter, may you be sweetened by hope and humor. If you are frightened, may you be emboldened by a big consciousness far wiser than your fear. If you are lonely, may you find love. May you find friendship. If you are lost, may you understand that we are all lost, and still we are guided by strange angels and sleeping giants, by our better and kinder natures, by the vibrant voice within the beat. May you follow that voice, for this is the way, the hero's journey, the life worth living, the reason we are here. From a phenomenal book by Elizabeth Lesser, Broken Open, How Difficult Times Can Help Us Grow. We are certainly living in difficult times right now. And so hopefully your relationship, your marriage, your family is the best it can be. Now, I know people face financial hardship, medical conditions, heartbreak, heartache, divorce, facing the fact that, oh my gosh, I'm in lockdown and I'm not in lockdown with the lover that I want to be in lockdown with. So these issues are commonplace. They affect everybody. Do something for somebody else. 
Go outside of yourself, take care of yourself, and take responsibility for what you have done. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.